Welcome to MedCast, the podcast from MedKai, the Maryland State Medical Society. Each episode, we'll be doing a deep dive into medicine and taking an insider's view on issues facing Maryland's physicians and patients and healthcare more broadly. I'm your host, Dr. Stephen Rockauer. Today, my guest is Dr. Karen Dionisotis, a psychiatry resident at Hopkins University in Baltimore. Dr. Dionisotis, thank you so much for being with us. Of course. Thanks, Dr. Rockauer, for inviting me. I'm so happy to, uh, to have you. Uh, let's start with uh, a few basic uh, biographical things. You know, tell me about uh, where you grew up, where you went to school, medical school. And usually I talk about residencies, but here you are in your residency. So we'll talk about that some too. Perfect. Um, so I'm originally from the Northwest suburbs of Chicago, a place called Lake Zurich, Illinois. Um, I went to college just a little bit north of me in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. I went to Marquette University uh, for undergrad. And then um, immediately following that, I, I moved to Omaha, Nebraska and attended medical school at Creighton University School of Medicine. Um, I was originally uh, intended to graduate in 2017 with my class, but took actually two gap years between my third and fourth year of medical school when I moved to Baltimore for the first time. Um, and got my master's in public health at Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health, and then actually stayed to work for uh, Maryland Medicaid for this, the state office here, um, doing uh, kind of financial analysis and fiscal analysis of bills going through the General Assembly that would impact the Medicaid population. So kind of got my, got my feet on the ground in policy in that way, and then returned to Creighton, graduated in 2019, and ended up matching out here uh, at Hopkins for, for psychiatry residency, um, during which I'm, I'm currently in my fourth year, which is my last year of residency, which is, which is wild. And we, and we were very glad to have you when you were doing your uh, time at Hopkins, uh, getting your MBA, because uh, your stuff at dealing with the Medicaid program in the legislature was, was very, very helpful. So what led you to pursue or master's in public health while you were in the medical uh, medical school? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I mean, I feel like I almost had tunnel vision on going to medical school since I was really young. And I just kind of felt like that's what you do. And you, you know, you graduate high school and you go right to college and you graduate college and you go right to med school. And I, I do think some colleges kind of like really push that almost and, and having this kind of thought or feeling, well, if I don't get into medical school right away, I'm going to be a failure, right? Or I'm, I'm never going to go back. I'm never going to make it. Um, and so I, I started medical school when I was uh, 21. I have a late birthday, so I'm a little bit younger than most people in my class. Um, and I was the third youngest person in my class, um, which for me at the time was really shocking to see that I, you know, people in medicine who had had completely different careers before deciding to change course and come back to medical school. Um, and so it was during medical school early on that I joined the American Medical Association, the AMA, and I was part of the medical student section. I actually went to my first meeting. It was uh, the interim meeting of my, my uh, first year of medical school. It was in November and it was in National Harbor, Maryland. So that was actually my first trek out to Maryland. Oh, um, wonderful. <laughs> I know. And it was, you know, at that meeting that I was just so like blown away by the passion and the knowledge that these medical students had about things outside of clinical, outside of clinical medicine. 
Um, you know, I, I met all of these people who were, you know, MD PhDs and who were taking time off to do an MBA, taking time off to do an MPH, to do an MPP, all sorts of different things. And it, it really is kind of what sparked that thought in me um, to, to look at what exists outside of clinical medicine, but still within the realm of healthcare. And so really it's, it's those people that I met and I'm still, you know, very close friends with through the AMA. Um, that kind of led to me exploring uh, what a master's in public health would be and, and what kind of that sort of training would look like and how that would benefit my, my future patients. Does a master's in public health have a area of expertise or, or specialty? You know, I know that when you were here doing that, you were involved in uh, policy making and, and the Medicaid program, but, you know, is, is that, was that a track that you could have arranged or you just did that on your own? That's a great question. Um, so the master's in public health actually has multiple different kind of uh, like concentrations. So there is a general curriculum that everyone needs to complete. But then on top of that, you take uh, classes in like specialty kind of curriculums. And so I was in the school for uh, health policy and management. Um, and then within that, I had a second kind of super specialization almost uh, in health policy systems, economics, uh, and policy, yeah, systems, economics, and policy. Um, so I really, really focused on health policy um, as that was really at the time, like one of the things that I realized that, you know, as physicians on the ground, like we have an understanding of the mental health system or of the healthcare system in a way that others don't. And so being able to apply our, our knowledge broadly to affect a general population, right, at a policy level, that is really making, you know, just an incredible impact in a way that sometimes the frustrations of one-on-one -on -one clinical medicine, you know, can't. Oh, I agree. You know, I've said all along, and you've heard me say it, that uh, our work in, in public policy is, is so important because each of our work day-to-day -day across the uh, the desk to our patients is one-on-one, -on -one, but when we're working in public policy, we're working for everybody and it affects everybody. And what happens in Annapolis affects all of, uh, all of us, yeah. um, whether we're in psychiatry or orthopedics or internal medicine or family medicine or whatever. So what led you to psychiatry? Um, so, you know, during medical school, I actually, clinical rotations third year, I generally enjoyed all of my rotations, which was kind of stressful at the time since I took a break between third and fourth year and was not totally sure uh, what I wanted to do. Um, I really love primary care and I love continuity of care, um, having a relationship with patients. I love preventive medicine, um, like all of these aspects of care. Um, and, and when I really looked back and reflected upon my clinical experiences, I realized, oh, like, wow, when I was in OB, I really, you know, really loved learning about and taking care of the patient with that, you know, postpartum depression or with the, the anxiety that has a peripartum onset. Or, you know, when I was in primary care or in pediatrics, you know, doing screenings for different sorts of behavioral health disorders um, or, you know, talking about just patient anxiety or ways to improve coping skills, quality of life. Um, and, and so those things kind of really led me towards psychiatry. And then I, I also really do think that, you know, there's so much work that needs to be done within the behavioral health system at large and anybody with a mental illness, right? Whether, you know, whether what 
you know, degree of socioeconomic status you have, right, is it's a vulnerable population because unfortunately, right, there's so much stigma involved in mental illness. And so there's just so much work to do on a population level, on an education level, on a policy level um, in the behavioral health system. And so that also really drew me uh, here because I knew that something that, you know, there's work to be done and I could make an impact. Yeah, behavioral health is, is really so important, especially in training. I know one of the big problems is uh, suicide among uh, trainees, medical students and residents, and even physicians as well. Um, I don't know if you've had any uh, contact with any of that at all or you know, dealt with any of these people. Yeah, that's, um, yeah, and I, I think my thoughts are that, you know, as physicians and as, you know, leaders of a healthcare team, um, we are viewed by our patients as infallible, right? We're viewed by our patients as like superhuman. Um, and so that is the way that we feel like we need to come across. And it's seen as frowned upon to have vulnerabilities mm. in medicine um, mm. or to show vulnerability in medicine. I know for myself personally, I really, really struggled with depression during medical school and I didn't really know what was happening and I didn't really understand why I was so miserable. Um, and it, it wasn't really talked about, you know, in our, in our school. And it was actually seen as unprofessional, right? <laughs> that mm -hmm. I was dealing with a medical illness in the same way that, you know, someone deals with diabetes or someone deals with high blood pressure, but for me, depression was really debilitating. And, you know, the thought of taking medications and being in therapy, right? And then as a student, you're so stressed about, well, you know, what about my future licensure? Like, what do I need to report in the future? All of these things like really stigmatizes physicians having mental health things. And really like we want people to be getting help, right? We want people to be proactive about acknowledging when they have an issue and following through and taking medications if that is what is needed or being in therapy to really help with things. Um, but unfortunately, because our field continues to stigmatize physicians who have mental health problems, people don't come forward, right? And then it gets to a breaking point. And unfortunately, death by suicide is, is a fatal one. Um, and it's, it's a huge problem, I think, in our medical field. And I really hope that by talking about it more and by being more open about our own experiences that hopefully that stigma will decrease and, and hopefully people will be able to reach out and get the help that they need. I know there was a number of uh, articles and a lot of publicity about Dr. Lorna Bean, yeah. Breen, uh, who is an, uh, an ER physician in New York in the middle of the pandemic, uh, who ultimately took her life. And um, there was uh, there's a whole foundation set up in her name that helps with that. Yeah. Um, yeah, that was a really important piece of legislation that came through, I think, just acknowledging and also like having this living memory and and response to a problem in in Dr. Breen's name. I know I personally have, I can't even tell you how many of my friends, uh, you know, matched in New York. And so our emergency medicine, med peds, internal medicine, psychiatrists, all sorts, all sorts of residents in New York who are on the front lines during the pandemic. And, you know, I continue to still worry about this group, um, you know, as now monkeypox is coming in and, you know, is this going to be a second pandemic that they have to really worry mm. about, right? Because 
frontline doctors are really the ones getting the brunt of what's going on, right? Like they are getting sick from COVID. They are the ones being exposed to monkeypox and having to take off work. And that stretches, right, our you know, residency programs really, really thin. And so people become really overworked and really burnt out. And I think it's a systemic problem in the way that we, you know, as physicians and as public health professionals deal with when something new like this is coming out. Um, we don't always know how to protect, or we don't always prioritize protecting our workforce. And I think that that's, you know, another really important lesson that we've learned uh, from COVID. And that goes to not only physicians, but uh, the residents, the nurses, the um, uh, the staff in the hospital, the people who Absolutely. are cleaning, cleaning the beds and uh, mopping the floors who are exposed to all this at the same time. And they all have families and go home and get on the subway and et cetera. And, yeah. uh, you know, and, and they have to you know, be cared for as well. Yeah, absolutely. All frontline workers are have been impacted mm -hmm. on so many different things these past few years. And I mean, I think we're only starting to kind of maybe get back to some sort of normalcy within our hospital system. I mean, everywhere is different. We definitely still have COVID cases. There's definitely still a significant number of people dying from COVID every day. And so, you know, while part of me wants to kind of leave COVID in the past, right, and, and move on uh, and kind of forget that it happened, it, we no, can't, no. right? People are still being impacted by this on a daily basis. And we also really can't forget the losses that we had, you know, these past three years. It's really crucial that we keep those memories alive and, and also that we learn from the mistakes that we made um, like from a public health surveillance and public health perspective. And that's the nexus with public policy to uh, get government, you know, both on the administrative side and legislative side to do things to, you know, help the people involved who have all these problems. Yeah, absolutely. And that's also why it's so important for us as physicians and other healthcare, like all healthcare workers to be the ones advocating for change and why it is so crucial for us to, to be the ones having these discussions with our legislators because we are seeing things right in front of our eyes and we ha all have a story or two or three or 100, right? Mm -hmm. To tell somebody mm -hmm. about why this is such an issue. Um, and so I, I really do like to think of advocacy as an, another duty of a physician on top of, right, being a clinician or being a researcher or however you want to define yourself. I do think that being an advocate and being involved in advocacy is is crucial to our Absolutely. profession. Absolutely. And doing it through organized medicine. Uh, why do you think that you know, trainees such as medical students, residents, fellows should be involved in organized medicine? Yeah. I mean, I think... It, it gives you exposure to the system at a larger level. That's more difficult to get if you are just one person going to the Hill talking about a topic, right? I remember, you know, as medical students in the AMA, right, we had advocacy day um, every year, once a year, where we'd all go to the Hill and we'd have specific training and talking about topics. And then, right, we would bring that to the staff members, usually the health policy staff members, like of these uh, legislators. And getting to be able to talk about your own experiences and why it's important. You know, these are things that people with their feet in Washington, they're not seeing these things like we are. Um, you know, I, I do think that advocacy and having this sort of training is, is a, it's a skill, right? It's a learned skill. And so I feel like involvement in organized medicine is a really great way to 
learn that skill and also gain leadership experience in so many different aspects, right? Um, meeting other physicians, networking, being able to lead committees, join committees, write resolutions. I mean, these are all things that are, I don't know, I feel like have really opened up my eyes as someone in healthcare to be able to look at things outside of a direct patient encounter um, and really look at a lot of the gaps that exist um, and then, you know, work to be the people that are are solving them. And so I do, I do think, you know, whether you're joining you know, your specialty society or your state society or a national organization or, you know, even a county, right, medical society, these, every level of organized medicine is incredibly important to make sure that we're doing, you know, we're advocating for our patients and also advocating for our profession. Oh, I love this. <laughs> um, speaking of advocacy, um, you know, we've had uh, Dr. Terry Hill on uh, our program earlier and, uh, Dr. Clarence Lamb will be uh, upcoming, um, but I have to uh, put in a, a quick plug for the AMPAC uh, candidate school uh, for any physician or resident or fellow or student uh, who is actually interested in policy and interested in uh, becoming involved in a uh, campaign for office, either themselves or working with somebody, uh, AMPAC runs a school here in Washington um, to uh, teach people how to do that, uh, give them all the tips and help. So uh, if anybody listening is, uh, is interested in that, um, you know, contact AMPAC. Uh, and you can actually, be... oh, sorry to interrupt, Dr. Agar. I was going to say you can actually do that as a medical student. So I, um, I went to AMPAC, I went to campaign school, probably my, the year I was doing my MPH. Oh, okay. um, I was in Baltimore. And so I took the train down to DC and, um, you know, was staying with friends in DC. And that's actually the year I met um, Bobby, Dr. Mukamala. So that, like, I feel like, is a great way to meet people who are involved in, you know, elections and politics, both at an organized medicine level, as well as people who are interested in running, you know, at a local level, at a state level, or a national level. Um, I learned so incredibly much from these experts uh, who are campaign managers and run campaigns. Um, and it was actually just such a fascinating and, and amazing learning experience. So I, I also highly recommend, and I would put a plug in, you know, not just uh, residents and fellows and and other physicians, but this is something that medical students are able to be involved in as well. Okay, I didn't know that. I that you were a, a graduate yeah. of that. Uh, <laughs> that was a that was a good uh, tie-in. Um, so, what are your plans after residency? So, I am, as I mentioned, graduating from residency this, this uh, June in 2023, which is wild to think that we're already coming up on 2023. Um, I, I'm very fortunate to be at uh, such a supportive institution and, and with such incredible mentors. And so I'm actually staying here for another year and doing a one year geriatric psychiatry fellowship. Um, I've really kind of found a home and found uh, a place where I feel like I can make an impact um, in medicine as well as kind of on a policy and systems level. Um, and I have just really, really enjoyed taking care of older adults. And so I'll have a one year geriatric psychiatry fellowship uh, training, which I'll graduate from in 2024, and then we'll be looking around for, for a career um, and for a place that I can know that, you know, I will be able to make an impact in some way. Where do you, where do you see the field of psychiatry moving forward? 
were in geriatric psychiatry. Yeah, I think, I mean, in psychiatry in general, there's such a need, right? We, there's never going to be enough psychiatrists. And so, you know, I've spoken with a few people from the APA, uh, the American Psychiatric Association, like Council on Healthcare Financing and Systems. And there are people who really feel that psychiatrists are going to move towards practicing, you know, at the highest extent of our license, right? And so seeing only the most severely mentally ill, right, as opposed to people that we sometimes refer to as like the worried well. Um, so seeing the most severely mentally ill patients, and then also supervising others who see kind of uh, the rest of the population with behavioral health needs. Um, and so I could see psychiatry moving in that direction as the need for a psychiatrist grows greater, right, especially in older adults as the boomer generation is aging. Um, it's only going to create a greater need for more geriatric psychiatrists in which there is already a really significant gap. So I'm, I'm hopeful that, you know, we'll continue to, um, you know, have residency slots and increase residency slots and fellowship spots uh, for people going into psychiatry, right? Um, and really also kind of destigmatize the field in general. Um, I remember in medical school, so many people just really like talking poorly about the field of psychiatry and as psychiatrists, as physicians, um, you know, and I can tell you as a psychiatrist here at my program, right, my intern year was at Bayview Medical Center and was spent mostly doing wards and the cardiac ICU and the medical ICU and then obviously the COVID units that came about that spring. So I actually do feel very well prepared from a med medical perspective. And I think that is also kind of you know, what's allowing me to pursue geriatric psychiatry is having that degree of medical training is so crucial. Um, but I, I do think that that sometimes people view psychiatrists as not physicians. I think we really need to stop having those conversations and we need to stop that rhetoric um, because it's really only hurting the field and it's actually hurting the patients who have such a great need for, for the type of care that we provide. Let's take a quick break. We're speaking with Dr. Karen Dionysotis, a psychiatry resident at Johns Hopkins in Baltimore. Funding for this podcast has been made possible by Mid-Atlantic Medical Collection Services. Mid-Atlantic works with your patients to help them understand their bills, review charges, and consider repayment options. When it's easy for patients to make payments, they're more likely to pay you and pay you sooner. That's the Mid-Atlantic approach. To find out if Mid-Atlantic can help you, email collections at mamcs.net. Funding for this podcast has been made possible by Unity Insurance, a full-service insurance agency specializing in solutions for the healthcare profession. Since 1975, they've been providing solutions to meet the needs of physicians like you. Learn more at unityinsurance.co. Welcome back to MedCast, the podcast from MedCi, the Maryland State Medical Society. We're continuing our discussion with Dr. Karen Deanna Sotis as she discusses psychiatry and policymaking in Baltimore. Um, so we were talking about psychiatry and uh, 
taking care of older people and some of the interesting experiences that you've had. What are some of the most interesting experiences you've had either in psychiatry or in your involvement in, in organized medicine? Yeah, um, so I'll, I'll talk a little bit about organized medicine first. Um, I mean, I think one of my greatest experiences that I had is that I had the immense privilege of being the chair of the medical student section of the AMA during my fourth year of uh, medical school. Um, and so while that position, I felt like I was kind of hanging out while everybody else was doing a lot of work, um, I got to travel around a bit and meet medical students across the country and learn about the incredible things that they're doing for their communities and really just you know, meet these incredible medical students who were so passionate about topics and they would join our uh, committees that we would have um, and really just, you know, make a difference and do great work and write policy and put on workshops at the meetings and, you know, engage in online conversation about different topics. And so I just feel like, you know, out of all of the things that I've done in organized medicine, um, that has really been just really special to get to be bear witness actually to the incredible things that students are doing across the country. Um, you know, as a resident, I'm I'm very fortunate as I'm a, I'm a part of the American Psychiatric Association Leadership Fellowship, and so I meet every month with uh, other leadership fellows from across the country um, who are either residents or fellows, um, and we work on leadership development and. Um, Dr. Rakar, you know, our colleague uh, Avni Patel, so she's joined the fellowship this year. And so her and I are working together on, uh, you know, creating educational experiences and, and creating kind of a program for the, for the group for this, this year. And so that's also really been um, a great experience. Um, in terms of clinical medicine, gosh, um, I mean, I, I think for me, it's the patients that I feel that I connect with on a very personal level um, and that I feel like I have a good relationship with their families and I feel like you know I'm able to be there for their highs and their lows and that just is really what brings me a lot of joy. Um, I really love taking care of my outpatients and many of them are older adults um, and so some I see in person and some I you know have phone calls and some I see via zoom and some I you know dash across town to see them when they um, you know, are going to an appointment for another specialty, but, you know, it, it's better for me to lay eyes on them and see them in person um, than have them come downtown after being here. And so actually that's, I'm at Bayview Hospital today right now um, because I came to see one of my patients um, before one of their appointments. And so, you know, it's being able to provide that kind of care as a resident um, that I love, right? And, and having that flexibility. And really that's something that I feel like residency can really only grant. Um, and I've just been kind of soaking it in and taking advantage of it. Yeah, that's terrific. I never had that kind of um, variability or uh, ability to, to do anything like that when I was a resident. Um, one of the things that I always found, not so much as a resident, but through my career, was talking with patients and following them along and their families um, and, and you'll eventually get to this of dealing with parents and children and grandparents and talking to the children about their grandparents, um, you know, and they say, they look at you like, oh my God, you know, he really knows. Yeah. Yeah. I, and I love like that part of my job. The fact that I know enough about my patients, like I know the names of their siblings and their parents. And I know, 
you know, what their kids do for work. And I am able to like ask about how they're doing by name. And I, I know these things because I really put in a lot of time to know my patients. And I think that that is crucial in psychiatry, especially um, to be able to know your patient as a full person, as opposed to just an illness or, um, you know, someone that you're treating. Let's switch gears for a little bit. Um, what might you be doing if you were not a physician? Um, that's actually something that I've thought about quite a bit. Um, you know, I think realistically, like in kind of the somewhat type A <laughs> neurotic person that I am, <laughs> I think that, right, like being in public health and or public policy is probably where I would be if I weren't a physician. Um, but I like to like daydream about the life where I'm like an art historian, like working in Rome or like I'm like retired on a vineyard in Tuscany and like, that's my job. So that's a little bit more romantic than, uh, is probably more, what is, what is more realistic for me? <laughs> what do you, I know you're a resident and you're busy doing all sorts of things, but what are you reading or watching or listening to? Um, so I actually, after medical school, I really, and well, actually probably after intern year, because intern year was just very difficult and emotionally draining and time consuming. Um, I really made it an effort to like reclaim reading as a hobby, um, versus right. Like you spend all of medical student at medical school with your nose in a book. And the last thing you want to do is like read for fun and enjoyment. And right. so I've really reclaimed reading as one of the things that I enjoy, um, and I have a subscription to book of the month and I get a new book every month. Um, and I actually end up getting more than one because I just love to have books. Um, and so right now I'm currently reading The Goldfinch by uh, Donna mm -hmm. Tart. Um, it actually won the 2014 Pulitzer Prize for Fiction. It's like almost 800 pages long, mm -hmm. I think. And I'm finally on page like 700. <laughs> so I'm getting there slowly. It's definitely uh, one that's taken me a bit longer to get through. Um, and then what am I currently watching? Um, my partner and I are watching Obi-Wan Kenobi, um, which kind of speaks to me being kind of a nerd. Um, so the Star Wars spinoff show that Disney Plus has on. And then uh, listening. I've been really, really into Lizzo's new album, Special pretty much been listening to that on repeat. And then actually also Miley Cyrus's album from a couple of years ago from like 2020, um, Plastic Hearts and uh, have been really vibing on those and then some kind of background jazz kind of music. Interesting that you're reading The Goldfinch. When I, when I was reading it, uh, I, I think I had it at the book or maybe I had it on my, um, on my Kindle, but I had my iPad open in front of me with the picture of, you know, the goldfinch oh, that the goldfinch. this whole thing yeah. is about, you know, sitting right in front of me. And so I'd be watching the, the, you know, the goldfinch while I'm reading the goldfinch. So I, I really am like uh, doing that. I love that. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, you talked about, you know, meeting Dr. McCamela, uh somewhere along the way, you know, have you had anybody uh, give you good advice uh, what, what's the best part of advice you've ever gotten? I feel like, and this is probably, you know, as a psychiatrist, right. And as someone in behavioral health and as someone who's had depression and has really had to kind of take a step back and look at my own wellness. Right. But the, the thought that you can't take care of others unless you take care of yourself. Right. And I think that that is so important because as physicians, we are 
we we pretty much have to right prioritize prioritize our patients. I mean, I can't tell you the number of people that I know that have come to work just like violently ill because that's the expectation. Um, but I actually really like to challenge that. You know, like I think it is so crucial that in order to take care of people and be able to provide the best care, like you need to be in the best headspace. So both mental and physical health. Um, you know, if I had a stomach bug right now, like would I really be that focused on this conversation, right? Or would I be so stressed and anxious about, well, am I gonna get sick during this, right? All of these kinds of things. Um, and so, you know, the thing that I think about is that as physicians, we, we're always counseling our patients, right? On getting more sleep and exercising and eating healthy and having open communication and healthy boundaries and, you know, putting your physical and mental health above all else, but then we don't do that ourselves. And the expectation is that we don't do that ourselves. And it's honestly, sometimes almost inhumane. Um, you know, we push ourselves to the very limit of what we're capable of. And because of this, you know, patients, unfortunately, suffer when we're not at our best. And so I'm a huge proponent of, you know, being in therapy and having conversations about wellness and, you know, really processing the things that we see, because also as physicians, you know, it's, it's hard to see the things that we see sometimes and then go home and just pretend like it didn't happen or like take off your, you know, theoretical doctor code at the end of the day and like leave all your patients at work. Um, and so I think processing the things that we see and the, the experiences that we have is, is crucial in being a, a, the best physicians that we can be. And that brings us back to uh, what we talked about earlier about the, the stresses and the stigmas that uh, physicians have as far as admitting to uh, these kinds of things and, and the trouble of having to just have a very difficult conversation with a patient and then just move on to the next room with, you know, your smiling face on it's, it's mm -hmm. very, very tough. Yeah. Yeah. I, and I mean, so I spent yesterday in our emergency room here, I was uh, working in the PES and so I think a lot about like the docs on the other side, outside of my like little psychiatric uh, like area right? The emergency med docs who really are just going from patient to patient, there's traumas being called overhead. You know, they're telling people sometimes like the most difficult news they've ever heard in their lives. And they're just moving from person to person. Um, and I just, I think about that sometimes because I cannot imagine myself doing that. And of course, right, like there are different temperamental things with different specialties and you do have to be able to, to handle uh, like keeping on that smile, right? Or moving from one thing to another and really just blocking it out. But I, I do think that after a shift, it's really important to debrief and to process the things that we're experiencing because then they do tend to build and build and build. Um, and I even have issues like that, um, you know, as a psychiatrist, right? Like I have seen really difficult things. I've heard about, you know, really traumatic experiences of my patients and even like carrying that secondhand trauma can be difficult. And so being able to process that in a safe way and feeling like you can debrief with colleagues when hard things happen. Um, I just think it's, it's such an important part of our field. And I think that we need to also mention that MedCi and many of the other medical societies locally, Montgomery County, I know for sure, have programs for doctors who have uh, difficulties and can keep things 
private uh, so that you're not worried about um, the stigma and you can talk about uh, any problems that you have. Yeah, um, I think that that's really helpful. There's definitely a lot of uh, psychiatrists who, you know, treat the, the, our physician population. Um, I think that the one thing that I think of, though, is that, I mean, I feel like at least I'm like very upfront with my patients about, you know, being in therapy. And I think that therapy is something that honestly every person should be in because there's always something to to really reflect upon yourself and and try to better yourself in a way or there's always something to process. Um, and so while I appreciate that not everybody is at the point of their lives where they want to have all of that information out there, right? They want people to know that they are like taking care of themselves and are in therapy. I, I do think it's important for us to begin to have those conversations as well too and, and normalize that as physicians. Well, I think this has been a fascinating discussion. I want to thank Thank you, Dr. Karen Dionisotis, who has been our guest on MedCast, the podcast from MedKai, the Maryland State Medical Society. Tune in next time as we continue our conversation with the leaders of medicine in Maryland to discuss issues facing physicians and our patients. For all of us here at MedCai, I'm Dr. Stephen Rockout. Thank you and goodbye.